You're listening to Women in Revolt, a six-part mini-series about art, activism and the women's movement in the UK in the 1970s and 80s. I'm Lindsay Young. I'm a curator and since 2017, I've been researching the art and artists that feature in Women in Revolt, an exhibition on between November 2023 and August 2025, starting at Tate Britain in London and then at the National Galleries of Scotland Modern in Edinburgh and lastly at the Whitworth in Manchester. Throughout my research for the show, I've been meeting artists, makers and activists and hearing about their experiences living through a time of extreme social, economic and political change, exploring how their art and ideas forged a path and learning about the great debt women of my generation owe to them. In this, our final episode of our podcast, we'll hear from women artists, photographers, filmmakers and activists who were responding to the political upheavals in the 1980s And we'll hear how this changing political landscape impacted on their ability to make and show work. Before we start, I should warn that this episode includes references to hate speech and racist attacks. I should perhaps also say that this episode contains strong anti-Thatcher views. That's because, for all of her admirers as Britain's first woman Prime Minister, Margaret Thatcher was not generally seen as supportive of the women's movement. Her impact was felt by many of the artists in the show to be detrimental to their political beliefs and actions. Here's artist Prue Stevenson from Sea Red Women's Workshop, who we first heard from in our first episode. As we all know, Margaret Thatcher came in at 1979. I mean, we'd known of Margaret Thatcher before, so it wasn't a great you know, thing of celebration by any means. In fact, I can remember waking up in the morning and thinking life will never be the same again with this woman. I mean... Fantastic that she was a woman, but she was actually a great deal more sort of right wing and more sort of generally out to get everybody than a lot of her male counterparts, I think, in some, in some ways. And she was obviously, a lot of her policies was not on the side of women at all, really. She was very much, you know, you have to make your own way. It's all, I'm all right, Jack, all of that. And women did not fit into her agenda, really. So we decided we wanted to do a poster about her. And we wrote off to um, Tory party headquarters and asked for a photograph of our dear leader, how we'd love to have a photograph of her. And quite quickly, they sent back this absolutely wonderful photograph where she is looking amazingly sort of saintly, almost sort of Virgin Mary-ish, actually, with her clasped hands. And she's looking out with a, in her own way, not able to do it really, but trying to look empathetic, you know, sort of, I'm going to look after you all. And we rubbed our hands with glee and thought, this is absolutely perfect. And so we then got this photograph and we were able to print it off large, made a big poster and we put a a very ornate frame around it you know like you get in a sort of old old picture and in the frame is all the policies and attitudes of her government against women all the things that were going to actually make women's lives harder or that she hadn't in any way taken on board daycare centers closed nurseries closed Council houses up for sale, that's one of the things that she sold off council houses, making it very hard for people to get decent housing. There was a whole cost of electricity, energy costs, and 55 million cut from education, which directly affected women, of course. Hospitals closed, 
affairs increased everything that was going to make life much more complicated for women. And so we we thought long and hard about what caption to put. And we came out with this bubble coming out of her mouth, which was in answer to the main caption at the top of the, the poster, which says, my message to the women of our nation. And she's saying, tough. Margaret Thatcher would remain Prime Minister until 1990, and her policies would shape the agenda for feminists throughout the 1980s. For me, that Thatcherism was such a traumatic time. It was unbelievable, really. I became a kind of an adult when she came into power. And all of my period of time and my adult life until she left was based on protesting against her. So there was a way that I was understanding the rampant individualism, in a way, of Thatcherism and the privatisation process that was causing so much disquiet and really unravelling what, in effect, you know, my parents saw as a safe haven for their children. Right? So people moved to the UK to try and find a better life, right? <laughs> and then you come here and there's a disappointment. So the unravelling of that process of a civil society that you held in high esteem of health issues, of, you know, being able to find a job, of being able to get a career, all of those kinds of things. A, they were slightly mythical anyway, but actually my parents had that ambition for all of us coming to Britain. But also you just saw it unravelling. And having lived in the Caribbean, having lived in Guyana, where those things are not automatic, it's an incredibly... You can see that unravelling. So I'm Roshini Kempadu, and I'm a freelance photographer, artist, and also a lecturer at University of Westminster. Roshini spent her formative years in Guyana and returned to England when she was 18. I couldn't get over the perception that people had. So there was a total misrepresentation of people from the Caribbean, as therefore, obviously, of India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, etc. So I was really quite shocked by it that, you know, people still had this perception of people living in huts, for example, that there was, you know, it was really quite, quite bad. So I guess that's where my passion for understanding about and thinking through identity came from, because of this misperception that was very rooted in complete ignorance, really. So you had a lot of communities living around you that, that people were very ignorant of. This passion for understanding and thinking through identity would lead Roshini to make her work called My Daughter's Mind. It combines photographs of South Asian women who lived in the area around her with texts of quotes from them. So My Daughter's Mind was conceived while I was still in undergraduate course in the West Midlands. And it was really to do with kind of an exploration of three generations of Asian women. So I met up with and got to know some women who were swimming in the swimming pool on the campus. And they were a group of young Asian women who had young families and and started talking to them. And there was a kind of a set of presumptions, I think, in terms of recognising me as somebody who might be Asian but not quite. So I was kind of, I was very aware that there was a familiarity and a willingness to to have a conversation with me. But on the other hand, they also got to know and knew that I wasn't really from their background. 
Through making the piece, they went on a journey of getting to know each other, with Roshini meeting the women's extended families. She was interested in understanding how the different generations felt about being in England, something she was thinking through for herself in her own life, and it was behind the title of the piece. I called it My Daughter's Mind because I was thinking about the idea of my daughter's mind, right? That that actually, on the one hand, it's about an insight into their lives and what their thinking might be. But on the other hand, it was also about minding something, <laughs> that it was a point of where some of the daughters were having to deal with a kind of um, a push towards the tradition that they didn't want to go. So they minded something. They really didn't want to necessarily go down that route. Roshini photographed and interviewed women and children as they went about their everyday lives. She also went to a Hindu wedding and captured women at work, for example, a teacher in a classroom and women doing piecework at home. It was very much framed within the documentary format, right? That you then are observer, but you're a, a sympathetic and listening observer in that sense. And that's what I was trying to capture. Roshini's interest in understanding women and documenting them as a sympathetic observer would lead her to format photographers. I came across format as somebody leaving my undergraduate degree and having produced this piece of work. And it was very much the case of saying, well, what? how else was I going to exist as somebody thinking about being a freelance photographer? Format was a women's photography agency. It had been set up in 1983 by Val Wilmer and Maggie Murray, at a time when most photography agencies seemed to be run as a boys' club. The idea behind Format was to provide a supportive environment for women to work and develop their careers. But it was also about documenting people and issues that were largely invisible or badly misrepresented in the mainstream media. The kind of themes and the issues were always based on what women were, were interested in, you know, and what where women were working, right? And it had a very, very strong imperative, social imperative as well. So the, the idea of where there were protests uh, holding out for better rights for women, for queer people, for black people. So the campaigning process, the idea of really the underdog, representing the underdog, and trying to campaign for women's visibility was their, their thing. During the 1980s, format photographers would cover things like the miners' strike and protests against cuts to health budgets, anti-immigration laws and Section 28, which we'll come to later. Many of the original format members were involved in the Green and Women's Peace Camp, these were camps around the perimeter fence at RAF or Royal Air Force Base at Greenham Common, where women were protesting against the Conservative government's decision to allow nuclear missiles to be kept there. So what kind of things were they photographing? Sit-ins, protests, the campsite itself, because women were living there for many years. So they were literally doing a kind of a, a documentation of the daily kind of process of that. And then, of course, any kind of protest movement as well. So I guess in a way for me, it became a treasure trove of looking at women protesting, right? <laughs> which, which are campaigning and women activists. And I think that women photographers played an incredibly important role, like Maggie Murray or Brenda Prince or um, Joanne O'Brien, were all part of that process, Val Wilmer as well. So I learned from them 
in effect. And I'm still actually at the moment producing a piece of work where I'm thinking about the environmental activist <laughs> as a woman and how we visualise that for the 21st century. As well as covering protests, the image library at Format also included photographs of women whose lives were largely invisible, like the women Roshini photographed from My Daughter's Mind. The idea that women might photograph other women differently to men might today be referred to as the female gaze. Is there anything in this? I am very much of the view that there is something around a different type of gaze that occurs. The mask is different when you're a woman photographer behind the camera. I think women talking to women or allowing you to visualise them allow you a different insight Right? Because we all perform in a way. So it's a different performance when you're the same gender. I think that definitely happens. Your guard goes down and there's a much more, uh, there's a dialogic kind of space that could be had most of the time. And particularly, of course, when you're also of the same kind of political and cultural and <laughs> racial space, right? Is there also something about what women choose as a subject matter? I think the the gaze would be to do with what you photograph. So the idea of the everyday and the, the fact that you're choosing to recognise and respect different types of work environments, right, including housework, uh, you know, is central to that, you know. So it's understanding and, and recognising and giving visibility to the role that women play, doing more than their fair share of work in every day and in the, the economy generally. So for me, something like taking photographs of women who are sewing labels on at home, you know, homeworking, you know, those kinds of things are not necessarily that visible, right? So these are the things that I really wanted to kind of pick up on and try and contribute to. While Roshini was part of Format, she was commissioned to produce images for the Greater London Council, or the GLC, for its anti-racism campaign. This was a very significant period in the GLC's history. So Margaret Thatcher got in with the Conservative Party in 1979. But just after that... The Greater London Council, which is the regional authority for London, went Labour. And then through their internal elections, it went left Labour. And that's when Ken Livingstone became leader of the GLC. And then they began to enact policies that were, you know, in keeping with their, their view of what the left should be doing. My name's Lorraine Leeson. I'm an artist. I also teach and research at Middlesex University. During the 1980s, Lorraine was an advisor to the GLC's Community Arts Subcommittee. So how did this subcommittee come about? There was a, an Arts and Recreation Committee and every year, on the nod virtually, the Centres of Excellence in London would receive all that money carved up. I don't think they even had to make applications for it. And what they did is that they carved up that money. Some of it still went to the Centres of Excellence, but they put a million pounds into community arts, a million pounds into ethnic arts. And separately from that, there was also a women's committee that also sometimes funded the arts. Ethnic arts is a very uncomfortable term now, but it was the name of the subcommittee created to manage the budget for London's black cultural organisations. What about the community arts subcommittee? What was community arts? The community arts movement was very significant 
sort of earlier than this, in the 70s, even in the 60s, 70s really, it had a belief that you could change society by enabling people to access their creativity. So most community arts work was quite enabling, and it was about enabling. The term then got applied to other ways of working with community. So how did the Community Arts Subcommittee decide what to fund? It invited and supported ideas that were out there. It didn't try and direct them. So they had to be from an organisation. Legally, they couldn't fund individuals. And it was called the Community Arts Subcommittee, so it was meant to be serving the community. But people could apply for anything. So all sorts of different art forms were funded and also forms that may not have been otherwise funded. And one thing I always remember is an application by the Dagenham Batten Twirlers. And there was a great debate about whether this troop of girls could be considered artists. And it was a very serious, long debate. Meanwhile, the Batten Twirlers were outside in the halls of the um, the wooden panelled corridors of the GLC. They were twirling their battens outside. And we debated whether this was an art form. And the argument went that these women weren't allowed to play the sports and that this was the only thing that was open to them. So they developed this into an art form and became very good at it. And it was very skilled. So they got their money, I'm very pleased to say. But, you know, it was debates of that kind. And with really interesting people, I remember in that debate, there was Jill Posner, who had, she was responsible for the, um, the poster about the car. This is the photograph of a billboard advertisement for a car, which included the caption, if this were a lady, it would get its bottom pinched. That was then graffitied with, if this lady was a car, she'd run you down. Jill Posner, the photographer, was on the subcommittee, along with the filmmaker Liz Rhodes. Who else was on it? Just a range of very interesting, dynamic artists. And so, yes, a lot of things got funded. And that budget went up every year. And so London was really alive. I mean, there were festivals, there was concerts, there was all sorts of things. It was a really, really positive time. For Lorraine, working within the committee was also a really positive experience. One thing I can say about being on the uh, subcommittee at the GLC, walking down these mahogany panelled corridors, I was probably the first person to ever wheel a pram down them. I was probably the first person to ever breastfeed a baby in committee. It was just the acceptance that you could be a woman, you could be a mother. I mean, I could function quite well, but I needed my baby with me because he was being breastfed and and I couldn't leave him at home. But it was the fact that it was okay. It was very, very affirming. This supportive atmosphere was just one example of how feminism and feminist thinking had influenced the running of the GLC. Key to this were Hilary Wainwright and Sheila Robethan, two high-profile socialist feminist activists and academics who had co-written the 1979 book Beyond the Fragments, together with Lynn Siegel. It was talking about how the left should learn from the women's movement, so it needed to think about the way it used authority, the way it used democracy and representation, etc. So a lot of those sorts of approaches were taken on. This was extraordinary. Nothing like this had ever happened before. Hilary Wainwright and Sheila Robethan were both involved in the GLC's popular planning unit, supporting local communities to develop the People's Plan for the London Docklands. So the GLC wasn't a planning authority, but what it did as its approach 
it would support groups out in the community to do what they were doing. And I was involved in the Docklands campaigning for the redevelopment of the London Docklands to meet the needs of local people rather than the government's view of the, of the biggest bit of real estate in, in Europe. Lorraine and her partner of the time, Peter Dunn, worked with local communities to create poster and billboard images about what they wanted to say about the redevelopment. We became the cultural arm of that campaigning community and that lasted for 10 years. The Docklands redevelopment was one of many examples of issues where Ken Livingston's GLC would clash with the Thatcher government. They became very popular. In fact, they became so popular that the government had to do something about them because they were a threat. So they tried everything. And some people may remember the um, vilification of Ken Livingston, Red Ken, he was called. You know, they did everything to discredit the GLC. And in the end, they couldn't. So they resorted to the only thing they could do, which was to abolish all the metropolitan authorities in the country. They couldn't abolish the GLC. There there was no legal means of doing that, so they had to do it for a whole tier of government. So the metropolitan authorities for London, Leeds, Manchester, Birmingham, all the key cities were abolished. And they set up a series of quangos, and the money got passed on to the quangos. And that's how the GLC went. And we didn't have a government for London for 10 years until the Greater London Authority was set up. And then when that was set up, it didn't have a remit for the arts. In fact, it didn't have remits for a lot of things that the GLC did. The abolition of the GLC would bring to an end a major source of funding for the arts and community groups in London. We saw our organisations just sort of disappear because of funding, because we weren't there long enough to actually gain our own funding and produce our own magazines. And yeah, there's a certain level where funding may breed complacency, but I don't think most of the organizations I knew were in there long enough to be complacent. (laughs) You know, we weren't major institutions. We didn't have our own property you know, our own houses and houses in the sense of organization houses. So we were very reliant on other institutions. That was artist Rita Keegan, who we heard from in the last episode. On top of the loss of funding in London in particular, minority groups across Britain had to cope with increasing hostility. From the early 1980s right through to the mid to late 1980s, the climate of anti-immigration laws, the climate of racism, the climate of homophobia was just pernicious. And also, as pernicious as that was, so was the kind of both the artistic and political and cultural resistance to those attacks. And I think that artists really had a big role to play at that time in articulating the sort of resistance against racism and against homophobia in many ways. I am Pratiba Palmer. I am a filmmaker and a writer. In 1987, Pratiba made Reframing AIDS, a documentary film about the politics surrounding AIDS. Reframing AIDS came about at a time in the mid to late 80s when there was such an incredible backlash against the gay communities, against the LGBTQ communities. And AIDS and HIV was being talked about as this gay plague. 
And there were some very dangerous things going on in terms of media conversations and the way in which media was framing it and the way in which the government of the time, Thatcher, was they were framing this whole thing. Meanwhile, so many gay men were dying around us. This way of talking about AIDS as a gay plague had a dangerous historical precedent. During Hitler's time, homosexuality was seen as a disease. And as a result, so many homosexual men, particularly, but many lesbians too, had been in concentration camps and had been killed. So this narrative of LGBTQ people being diseased and being the ones who carried the plague and being deviants was really deep and it had to be challenged. I'd already been an activist around AIDS and HIV and I'd gone out to support the demonstrations, I'd supported pickets of the newspapers, some of the daily newspapers who remain unnamed, who, you know, were whipping up all this hatred against gay people. I was coming to making Reframing AIDS from a place of being an activist, but also a storyteller who felt that this was a moment in which the voices of LGBTQ activists, people who are HIV positive, academics, you know, writers, cultural commentators, we needed to hear from within the LGBT community what our response was. I assembled an array of these people and the voices and gave them the space within the video to frame how AIDS had come to be seen as this gay play, but that much more importantly, how these misrepresentations then affected our lives on a daily basis. So that for many people who are HIV positive, the kind of shunning they experienced in hospitals and in clinics, the absolute neglect, the egregious ways in which they were not given any kind of support. I wanted to show some of that and show that, you know, here is a community of people in their diversity and the ways in which we were all being affected by this incredible homophobia that was being whipped up. The film features a very impressive array of activists, and it speaks to the closeness of the LGBTQ community that Pratiba was able to recruit them all as talking heads. They included the politician Linda Bellos, the Labour leader of Lambeth Council, that had funded the film, and perhaps most surprisingly, Ken Livingston, who had just lost his role as leader of the GLC. Pratiba also featured work by other LGBTQ artists. I feature the work of Isaac Julian. He had made a short film called This Is Not an AIDS Advertisement. And, you know, I have extracts of that in their interview with Isaac. Then there is, you know, photographs by a lesbian photographer, Tessa Boffin, who was one of the first lesbian photographers to actually work around issues around AIDS. And she had this series when she was still an art student, which she called AIDS and the Body Politic. And there was these really startling photographic images. And so they are included in Reframing AIDS. One of the striking things about Reframing AIDS is how many of the talking heads were women. Media coverage and films about AIDS in the 1980s tend to focus on gay men, with lesbians left largely invisible. But lesbians had been on the front line, campaigning alongside their gay brothers and providing care and support to people living with HIV and AIDS. And they had to deal with the misperception that the virus didn't affect them. 
I really wanted to make sure that women's voices were heard. And, you know, those uh, Sue O'Sullivan and Susan Ardill and Sue O'Sullivan, who I then later on went on to co-author a pamphlet called Lesbians Talk Safe Sex because of this very factor that there was this myth that HIV and AIDS did not affect women. And it did. It affected women. And, and, you know, Positively Women was a group at the time who were doing a lot of work around that. It also sort of really challenged this notion of identities that are fixed. So a lesbian identity or a gay male identity is not fixed. There are some gay men who sleep with women and there were lesbians who slept with men. So, you know, there was this sort of complete deliberate misunderstanding of the kind of fluidity of our sexual identities. And I think that that really kind of affected the services and the resources that were made available to many women who were HIV positive. Reframing AIDS includes footage of protests against Section 28. That was the Thatcher government's ban on local authorities, intentionally promoting homosexuality. It would become law in 1988 and would have a chilling effect on local authority support for LGBTQ groups and for art that raised issues of sexuality and LGBTQ visibility. For example, we heard in the last episode about how local councillors in Barnsley had shut down the education programme for the Turing show Beyond the Lines of Resistance. Section 28 also affected conversations and teachings in schools. They wanted to completely erase and take out any school books in which families that were not just a mother and a father were depicted. So lesbian co-parenting, lesbian families, gay families were seen as being, again, deviant and not the norm. And Section 28 was very much about kind of removing any references and taking out all of So it was about censorship and censorship of not just the kind of educational materials that could be used in schools, but censorships of our lives as gay parents and lesbian parents. Pratiba was also involved in activism against racism and the government's anti-immigration policies. Britain in the 1980s under Thatcherism was a really challenging place for so many people of colour to live in. There were racist attacks happening all the time and the immigration policies particularly that were being whipped up by Thatcher and her government at the time, were policies that really denied basic human rights, but also whipped up the sort of right-wing racist organisings. This climate of racist attacks was the context for Pratiba getting into making films in the first place. A reminder that you will shortly hear reference to hate speech. The way I got into making film was when I was working as a youth worker in the early 80s and I was working with young Asian women. And one of the things that the young women had wanted was a workshop on self-defense. And I'd organized this workshop and subsequently, you know, they took photographs and some other photographers came and took photographs of them doing self-defense. And we created a series of posters. One of the posters was an image of the 
few of them doing self-defense. And one of the young girls was only 14 at the time saying, self-defense is not a sport, it's a necessity. And if anyone calls me a packy, I'll go kick their heads in. And so this is a very sort of powerful statement from young Asian women in the early 80s. You didn't hear these voices. And so we created these posters and we printed a few hundred of them and distributed them. And then the next thing I heard was that a teacher in an inner London school had put it up on their staff room wall and the headmistress had torn it down saying it was offensive and it incited violence. And then it ended up on the news. (laughs) This kind of incident ended up on the news. And I was like completely taken aback. And it was a real turning point for me because I saw how self-representation, when you represent your own reality and you put it out there, that can be so threatening to someone, then that's the power of representation and self-representation. And so for me, that was like, I want to be able to make videos and films that are telling our stories, that are telling stories of marginalized people and women and you know, getting it out there. In 1988, Pratiba made Sari Red, a powerful, moving response to the racist murder in 1985 of Kalbinder Kaur on her way home from Dartford College. When I read her story, I just thought, oh my goodness, that could be so me. That could have been me. That could have been anyone I know. Because if somebody called us any kind of racist names, we would shout back. And I always shouted back, you know, we would shout back for our own self-dignity and self-respect. And Kalbinda did that and she got killed for it. Pratiba got an opportunity to make something about it a few years later. A small video collective in Brighton, the Lighthouse Video Collective, had been given four high eight video cameras by Sony because they were just bringing out these new cameras. And one of the women who worked there had seen my very first video emergence. And she sort of said to me, she approached me and she said, here's a camera for you. You have three weeks and here's 200 pounds. Make a 10 minute video on anything you want. And I just knew immediately that I wanted to tell Kalbinda's story. I sat down and I kind of started to write a kind of a prose poem about her and in thinking about her and taught myself how to use this high eight video camera and went out and started getting lots of different kinds of images. And then I would come back and write some more and then I'd go out and collect some more images. And I wasn't sure some of the times when I was filming how I would use it, but I was so guided by my instinct. And so when it came to the edit, it just sort of started to cohere into this piece. So what kind of film came out of this process? It is an evocation of a young woman's life, a young South Asian woman's life that was cut short by racism. And for me, it was also an exploration of a visual language of storytelling that really was stepping outside of the bounds of any kind of journalistic or sociological current affairs kind of approach. And I think it was really important to me that the sort of visceral, emotional heart response was somehow reflected 
in the visual language of the piece. And so it's very much filmed within my own family, in my mother's garden, in the East End of London, and just everything that is in the video was something that was very much part of my own life and my own, you know, exposure to what was around me. By drawing on her own world and creating something deeply emotional, Pratiba was able to make Kalbindra's story very real and relatable. It also made it possible for people to see that we did not need to be just a statistic in the kind of overall statistics of how many people had been killed in racist murders, that here was a very specific story that was made real, this young woman's life. In November 1990, after more than a decade driving through her individualistic free market agenda, Margaret Thatcher resigned as Prime Minister. In the same year, Roshini Kempadu produced a work that speaks to how she is imagining a new way of navigating a post-Thatcherite landscape shaped by commerce and individualism. The piece is a series of four images that look like pages from an imaginary women's magazine called Presence. So presence was really a combination of things of where I was trying to think a little bit about an intervention, really, in a positive way around beauty, about confidence, about thinking through a positive space for black women, and also at the same time critiquing a little bit the popular image and challenging stereotypes, raising some of those stereotypes and then kind of re-critiquing them in that way. Roshini's idea for Presence came from her experience in New York. I completed an internship in the Smithsonian Museum and in the Schomburg Centre for Black Culture and was really struck by the level of magazines that were speaking to different communities in America, very high-glossy magazines. And, of course, the signature one was Essence, which was the magazine that was aimed at African-American women. And it was a really just very interesting to see how the idea of self-esteem, confidence-building, competitive kind of parallels of the women's magazine, but black women, African-American women, it, with all their strength and glory in those magazines. So these glossy magazines for women pitched at particular women of colour became very evident that they were there and they were not in England necessarily. I could, I could get them, but they were totally of a different culture. And so I was interested in what the debates that were being had, you know, what became newsworthy, etc. And at the same time, very interested in the amazing kind of poetry and prose that was being written by women of colour in books here, in publications here. Presence was a kind of English answer to essence. For the text captions, Roshini used wonderful quotes from writers like Maya Angelou, Audrey Lorde, Grace Nichols and Devjani Chatterjee. She also wrote some of the text herself. This pairing of quite surprising text with magazine-style photographs makes for a powerful and direct engagement with the popular media. Popular imagery and imagery in circulation through newspapers, magazines, media, advertisements have always been really fascinating to me because they are the things that are perpetuating the myths, the, the stigmas, the stereotypes that those are constantly being perpetuated. So working in a, a way as producing artworks for the gallery is 
a way of critiquing and commenting on the popular media. The first image, the cover of Presence, featured a full-page photograph of Roshini herself. At that time, we were having debates about why black women models were not on the front cover of magazines in England, right? And that was very clear. And we, I didn't understand it, but, you know, and they could not necessarily prove as to why they felt without any question that this was not going to sell magazines. So there is a way that that was about trying to progress a discussion around the images of black people and black women in particular in popular culture and popular press. The front cover text is completely made up of quotes from poems by black writers. For example, we've got Grace Nichols' poem, an extract from that called Love. And love is not an interlocking deadlock of inseparable flesh. Love is a sunshawl that keeps the beloved warm. There's another Grace Nichols poem that's a kind of challenge to the advertising and messaging around removing body hair. So it's really kind of raising some of the very kind of intimate issues about beauty and health and uh, laughter. (laughs) So I was thinking very much about that. Other images in Presence address the advertising narratives around beauty products for black women. There's a page featuring the hair product Dark and Lovely, with the quote from Audre Lorde, Is your hair still political? Tell me when it starts to burn. There's also a page commenting on skin products, including the text, Where there is a black woman, there is magic. There's a strong theme throughout of affirmation, support, pride and self-love. One of the things about the popular press, the seduction of it, is that it also is about celebration and it's about visibility and it's about competitiveness and it's about all of those other things. So the the women's magazine is quite a complex thing, actually, in a way. And I was trying to capture some of that. So on the one hand, a kind of a tongue-in-cheek and a political commentary, but on the other hand, also acknowledging, you know, where people have achievement and so, for example, example, the third piece about people, which would have been like an entry as part, a section of a magazine. The About People page opens with the words breaking ranks and written underneath the words. The success of black women is the sweetest music of all. Mama didn't lie. There are photographs of Hilary Carty, then a radio presenter, now a very successful consultant. There's the late artist Graminder Sikand and Roshini herself, styled as an executive. In a kind of spoof of an American Express advert, the text proclaims, amongst other things, tempered by their past, proud of their heritage, boldly facing their futures, these are today's leaders. Well, my intention is to actually literally think about a visibility that is beautiful, that is proud, that is confident, but also to situate ourselves in imaginative ways as being successful, as being able to be successful. And that's not imaginary, that's very real at the the moment. For feminist artists in the real world, though, the landscape at the end of the 1980s was increasingly challenging. In the summer of 1988, artist Damien Hirst staged Freeze, a group exhibition of the work of his friends in a warehouse in Bermondsey that has come to be seen as the start of the era of the YBAs, or Young British Artists. Over the next decade, they would dominate our understanding of British art, at home and internationally. Their art would become highly collectible. Suchi and Suchi were the um, advertising agency that the Tories used and helped to get them in power in seventy nine. 
the very famous poster, Labour Isn't Working, with the uh, dole queue. And then, interestingly, as the 80s went on, the Satchis then turned to the art world from advertising. So then became, you know, some of the greatest collectors and helped to, I suppose, boost the sort of work that we all know with the young British artists, the YBAs, and it all became about the market. The rise of these new kids on the block would have implications for women artists who had been making and curating feminist and politically motivated work, like Shutuba Biswas, who we heard from in our last episode. It somehow was able to move attention away from the work, not only the artwork, but also the curatorial work and the kind of interventionist practices that so many of us were engaged with and focus the attention away from that and onto, for example, the YBA. And without getting into a conversation about the nature of the work that was made by, you know, the recognised sort of umbrella YBAs, you know, some of that stuff was great and some of it, you know, I have reservations about. But I think the point here is that so much of that work was not situated in the kind of political activity that many of us as feminists and as black British artists had knowingly been engaged in. I think that, you know, it was very interesting and evident that this seemed to be happening. And that coinciding with the aggressive marketization of art that happened thereafter, presented difficulties for artists who were making issue-based work that related to questions of sexuality, race, class, gender, imperialism. You know, it presented some real challenges because the funding streams were being closed down. Here's artist Marlene Smith, who we also heard from in our last episode. In 1985, we were showing at the ICA, but in 1995, we were nowhere to be seen. So that felt like the end of a love affair. It really felt as though somebody had left somebody and left no forwarding address and there hadn't been negotiations about who was going to have the stereo. It would take many years and a new generation of writers, thinkers and curators to emerge for the tide of interest to turn back to the work of feminist artists and the political struggles they were engaged with. But the work of the people who safeguard their art and archives continued throughout. The work we've done on the exhibition and this podcast would have been impossible without the knowledge and support of artists and archives who have opened their doors to us and shared their experiences. We are hugely grateful to them and to the curators and academics such as Griselda Pollock, Grisika Parker, Dorothy Price, Alice Correa, Amy Tobin, Balanle Tajuddin, Amy Budd, Hilary Robinson, who have been working in this field for years. If you want to immerse yourself in the art and politics of these women, you can come and visit the show at Tate Britain until the 7th of April 2024 or see it on tour or visit organisations such as Glasgow Women's Library, Feminist Library Peckham, Black Cultural Archives, Women Artists Library at Goldsmiths or the Bishopsgate Institute. 
The Women in Revolt podcast series was made possible by the generous support of Labena Hamid. It was conceived of by me, Lindsay Young, and it was produced by Rosie Oliver of Ticker Tape Productions, who researched, conducted and recorded all of the interviews. It features music from White Mice by the Medettes. Women in Revolt, Art and Activism in the UK, 1970-1990, is on at Tate Britain from the 8th of November 2023 to the 7th of April 2024. At National Galleries of Scotland Modern, Edinburgh, from 25th of May 2024 to the 26th of January 2025. And at the Whitworth, University of Manchester, from 7th of March to the 24th of August 2025. The exhibition is supported by the Women in Revolt Exhibition Supporters Circle, Tate International Council, Tate Patrons and Tate Members.